Our scripture message this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Jesus said, It is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and I gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents, for to all those who have more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for, all the, as for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Reverend Stone, for that reading. Uh, my friends who are streaming at home, I greet you. My friends who could be here today, I greet you in the name of the Lord. It is certainly good to be together. As Reverend Stone spoke to us through her prayer and the invocation, she mentioned that we celebrated Veterans Day this past week. And I just wanted to say to all of my Peachtree Christian Church friends and family who served, uh, thank you for your service. And it is certainly inspiring to me that you have chosen to serve. That is a virtue and something to be lauded, the choice to serve. And so thank you, and we remember you well. Um, I think we should begin with prayer. 
the way the ending of that story went, it was a bit dark, don't you think? So I think we need to lighten it up with a little prayer. Join your heart with mine as we approach the throne of grace. Creator God, we are thankful for the life that you have given us. And we confess there are ways that we're not always living up to what you've given us. We've been wayward, we have been unwise, we have been foolish. We also confess that we have walked away from you, but it's the deeper confession of our faith and the joy of our hearts that while we walked away from your grace and light, you sent your son Christ to reconcile us unto yourself, to cultivate in us a desire for your ways and your will and your kingdom. And we're grateful. We also confess and believe as a community that you've sent your Holy Spirit to be a counselor, a guide, a friend to us. Send your spirit right now wherever we are, for you and I know that without you I can do nothing. We ask that your spirit take this riddle of Christ and have it implanted into our hearts that it may produce much fruit and that we may live renewed lives this week bringing renewal and a flourishing nature to everything and everywhere we go. It is in the matchless name of your Son that we pray and all God's people say together, Amen. A teenage boy's parents were going away for a night and they were leaving him home alone. The night prior at the dinner table, they went through the rundown of the things that he needed to do in their absence. Mom told him, when you get home from school, do your homework first. Then straighten up the house, and only then can you have two friends over. No more. You can have up to two friends over. She said, I'll leave you some money. You can order a pizza and download a movie. The next day, as he got up and went out to the bus stop for school, his mom and dad were at the door giving him hugs, telling him farewell, saying yet again the litany of things that he needed to do. Come home from school, do your homework, straighten up two friends. 20 bucks for pizza. He's at school now, and now he goes down to the cafeteria for lunch, and he pulls out the brown paper sack that his mama packed for him, and as he opened it up inside, she wrote him a note, again with the litany of things that he had to do. Finally, school was over. He got off the bus, he went into the house, and there sitting on the counter was yet again a set of instructions from his mama. When you get home from school, do your homework, straighten the house. You can have two friends over. Here's 20 bucks for pizza. I love you, honey. Sometimes, as parents, to get your child to understand something, you have to repeat yourself over and over again. Am I right? Can I get a digital amen? Absolutely, that's the case. And I think that's sometimes how God operates with the people of God, his children. At least that's what I think is happening here in this section of Matthew's gospel. Because Jesus is telling story after story that revolve around one concept, in my estimation. The concept is of eschatology, which is a very big word. It's a theological word. Eschatology often is thought about in terms of the end times, the end of the world. I think more appropriately, if you study the history of Christian thought, eschatology is not about the end of all things. It's about the end of an age and the beginning of a new one. The way we would understand it as Christians is when Jesus comes back again, 
That will be the end of this age and the beginning of his heaven and earth project, a renewed heaven and earth, a new heavens and a new earth that we read about in the book of Revelation. So he's using these stories, these parables, these little riddles to help people understand what he is to expect of them between now and his return. Of course, they don't get it. How could they understand what he's talking about? At this point in the story, they have no real notion that he's going to die on the cross, or if they do, they don't believe it. They can't imagine a resurrection, let alone something called the ascension, where Jesus would ascend into the heavens. How could they even conceive of a second coming? But he keeps repeating stories like this, nonetheless, to give them an idea about what is expected. As is so often the case, Jesus uses parables. I mentioned a moment ago, they're kind of like riddles. They're stories that are meant to make you turn your head a little bit. They have deep spiritual truth in them, and they're meant to be scratched and looked at and investigated and probed. Here in the story, you have a master with some servants. He leaves town for a while, and he leaves them with these things called talents. Now, in the story, these talents are not like what we think of when we think of talents. These are sums of money. One talent, I think, was quite a lot of money. He left one with five, he left one with two, he left one with one talent. You know, the one that had the five and the one that had the two, they double the master's talents. The one with one was afraid. And so he went and he buried this talent. The master comes back And now he gets to praise those who've doubled the talents and he's disappointed, very much disappointed with the one who buried his talent. Now I want you to notice a few things. The master gives differing amounts of talents to his servants. Yet what is not important to the story is how many talents they have when he comes back. That's not what's important. What is important is what they do with what was entrusted to them. How do they handle the very things that they have been entrusted to care for? So although talent here refers to sums of money, it's not hard for us to think about our own talents, our own physical giftedness. And I think about wasting those talents. Whenever we hear about somebody who's wasted their talents, we always think it's a tragedy. And the reason why is because it is a tragedy. I was watching that documentary on Aaron Hernandez. Remember him? He was a superstar tight end who played for the New England Patriots. And then it came out that he was in a murder investigation. And then he got put away in prison because he, in fact, committed an act of murder or multiple acts of murder. As the documentary investigates this incredibly talented athlete, who was now a millionaire and had a child and had all this going for him, the question was, why? Why did he participate in activity that was basically part of the life of a common criminal? Turns out, he never left his boyhood friends, and they were a rough crowd. But then you had one coach, and don't worry, it wasn't Bill Belichick, it was a college coach. And he simply said, such a tragedy all the wasted talent. It's true. There's something missing when talent is let go of. 
Notice also, though, that the one who wastes the opportunity to make more money with his talent, he just buries the money in the sand like a cartoonish pirate. Notice that he was driven by fear. He tells his master that he's a harsh man. By the way, if we're just reading the story, there's no evidence of harshness. There's only evidence of trust and also a welcoming spirit. There's no evidence of harshness whatsoever, but he thinks he's harsh. He accuses him of being harsh and he is afraid. And so there he buries his talent because he has been buried himself by fear. Friends, key to this little eschatological riddle is that each person, each one of us, you, me, every one of us is given gifts by God, some to a greater extent, some to a lesser extent, perhaps. Here's the question. The question is, until the day of the Lord, when Christ comes back, what will we do with what we have been entrusted What will we do with the time that we have? What will we do with what we have been given? Will we be faithful and use what we have for the healing of a broken world? Or will we live in fear? Will we let fear bury us to to stunt our own ability to help make the world flourish? Will we allow our fears to hasten our decay? Be careful. Fear's not all bad. Biologically, you have it to protect yourself, to stay alive. There's a reason we have fear, and it's not all bad. But I do want us to think about how much we let fear grow beyond its natural means into some sort of monster over us that stunts our growth. Sometimes, because of fear, we don't try new things. Sometimes we're resistant to change because of fear. Sometimes it gets in the way of establishing new relationships because we're afraid we build emotional and physical walls. There was a young man who had a a string of poor relationships with women. This weren't good matches. They didn't go well. It left a lot of heartache. And so the young man went to go see a counselor, a friend of his, a wiser person, to find out why. Why do I keep finding myself with these people that aren't good matches for me and I'm not good matches for them and why do we try to make it happen when it can't happen? And finally, the friend looked the young man in the eyes and said, the thing is, is you're pretty gutsy. You can go up and talk to anybody, right? The young man said, yes. He said, you could walk up to a pretty girl on the street and say, hey, good looking. It wouldn't worry you, bother you, or intimidate you, would it? And he said, no. He goes, but you are afraid to tell someone that you care about that you like them. The young man thought about it, and he realized that was true. Somebody that he had admired and thought to be a wonderful person of character, somebody who would be well worth his time, well worth the risk of being denied. But it was those people he was afraid to talk to. Fear can limit us. So I want to caution us. I want to say beware, church. If we let fear drive us, if we live lives of fear and 
shallow our way from doing what we're called to do. If we live those kinds of lives, we might just be alive when Christ comes back. And he might just catch us with our heads buried in sand. What would Christ say to us? We meet him out in the world. We live lives of fear. He might ask us these questions. What have you done with the time that I've given you? The precious time I've given you. What have you done with the gifts I've given you? The blessings, the talents, the abilities. How have you used them? Have you even unburdened another person? Have you made the world flourish? Do you realize what you've missed out on? This past week, I had an occasion to be in a meeting with Rabbi Peter Berg from the temple across the street who told me a story. I'm going to tell it to you now. There was once a king, and he loved his daughter. It was his daughter's birthday, and he decided he would invite everybody from the kingdom to participate. And then he had another novel idea. He invited every person to bring the very finest wine they had in their home. And then when they got to the party, they would climb up a staircase and pour their finest wine into this large vat. Everyone would mix their wine into this large vat because if we bring the best of everybody's, perhaps we'll have the very best wine. I'm not sure if the king knows anything about winemaking, by the way, but let's go with the story on this. That's not what we mean by red blend. And so people are invited and they bring their adorned wine bottles and casks and they line up and they go and climb up the staircase and they pour what's theirs into this large vat. But there was another. Another who thought to himself, gee, I mean, this is for the king and for his daughter. I don't know if what I have is good enough. What's more is that it's the best I've got. I would like to enjoy it myself. So he thought, Maybe instead of filling up a cask full of that wine, he would simply fill it up with water. He would do it in a way that no one could see him pour it in. None would be the wiser. And he would still have what was his at home. So now time came for him to include his offering in the large vat. And he walked up those steps and he opened it up and he put his hand just so below the, the, the top part so no one could see the, the red liquid come out or white, or clear water, whatever, it was, a white, it was a water. What color is water? I'm having trouble here. Clear water. And then he came back thinking he was clever. The time came for this big vat to be tapped. The wine, the best wine, this magnificent wine coming from everybody's home would be flowing plenty. And then the king goes and turns to tap, and out comes what? all water. It seems as though everyone was afraid of what they had, maybe not being good enough. Everyone was afraid of giving their very best because they wouldn't have it anymore. But what was really missed was the opportunity to come together and make something truly spectacular.